Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Welcome, everybody, to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. I'm Joe Lynch and your host today. Today, we have an awesome guest. We have Craig Fuller from Freight Waves. Hello, Craig. How are you? Great to be here. Craig, I'm absolutely thrilled to have you on the podcast. Wanted to have you on for a long time and finally doing it. So today's topic is why Chattanooga is the Silicon Valley of trucking with Craig Fuller. And Craig is one of the people who is responsible for making Chattanooga the Silicon Valley of trucking. So nobody better to talk to about this topic. Well, I, I appreciate that. I'm humbled by that. I, I certainly don't consider us the reason, but certainly have a loud voice and are able to bring a lot of awareness to it. You're one of the reasons. We'll give it that. So, Craig, before we get into the topic today, tell us a little bit about you. Introduce you and your company. So I've been around trucking my whole life. I grew up in a trucking family. My father started U.S. Express. My uncle started Covenant. So I grew up with big trucking really as part of our family dynamics. And worked inside my dad's business. You know, in those days, it was a startup. In 1985, it was a, a startup. It wasn't, there's was no venture capital. It was all funded by him and his efforts. And I saw his business grow, you know, went from 50 trucks to a couple thousand. So I learned a lot about how to scale businesses. You know, when you grow up in a family with a, an entrepreneur, uh, the best way to engage that, you know, engage my father was to spend time with him learning how, what made him tick and what he was passionate about. And that was his business. And so trucking was something that means a lot to me. Freight was something that I was enamored with as a little boy, could still continue to be enamored with it. And so I worked in his business until 2005, left and did a payments gig that I sold to U.S. Bank in 12. Stayed on for two years, didn't particularly enjoy working inside banking, was sort of burned out of it. Wanted to move closer back into trucking, but didn't know what I wanted to do next. And then I started working with some venture-backed startups that were sort of the early cycles of venture innovation around freight and learning how they were trying to bring solutions to the space. And so did that for a couple of years, some consulting, mostly freelance. A lot of it was for free because dealing with startups that didn't have funding, you're not getting paid. A lot of it was just free consulting. But after a couple of years in 2016... I decided to start what's now FreightWaves, which was built to provide transparency and risk management tools to trucking. So now FreightWaves, we are the largest news provider in freight. We have, you know, 30 full-time journalists. We'll have 40 by the end of the year, really covering all news and activity that happens around the global freight markets. We have a data business called Sonar that gets compared a lot to Bloomberg and certainly is inspired by Bloomberg and the, the Bloomberg dashboard. And then we're, we've launched Freightways TV or in the process of launching Freightways TV, which is really the first streaming TV network dedicated to freight and transportation globally. And so a lot of stuff happening around content. And that's why I certainly appreciate opportunities like this to talk about the space and overall what's happening. Yeah, well, I'm glad to have you on here. And I've just, we talked offline. I, I listened to your podcast interview with my friend Adam Robinson over at Saracis and, uh, I was very impressed with what you guys been up to. And I kind of did some research online years ago. I remember calling Adam one day and I said, God, what is freight waves? I never heard of this. And he said, they have so much content, Joe. And I said, it's really good because I've, I've always been a blogger. That's how I got to know Adam. Your content is, and I'm not just saying this because you're on my show. Your, your content is so insightful. You don't just have anybody writing because you just, that's what I've noticed about legit writing and logistics. You have to know logistics. You just can't hire any writer. And trust me, I've tried. I think it's, I think it's really, you know, the success of, we never set out to be a news outlet, but what we found is when we started writing content, we were writing it from a first person point of view. And actually the story is the original business plan for Freightways was to be, to create a futures market trucking. The problem of just going out and create a futures market is any mature financial market has a set of news services and data services that inform traders of what's happening in those markets. You see it in oil, you see it in the ag markets and so forth. And it just didn't exist in freight. There's really no news outlet that was writing about supply and demand on a daily basis, sort of the vibe of the market. And so we, you know, we were trying, actually we were just trying to get the traditional trucking press to write about what we were 
setting out to build. And it, it was just very apparent that there wasn't A, they didn't understand it, and B, you know, they would do an interview and publish it seven months later. And you're like, well, I the name of the company's changed three different times. And what we're talking about has actually moved since then. And so we, you know, out of frustration, frankly, we ended up deciding to build our own internal news blog to create our own press. And we hired, we put out a posting to bring in a writer, a content writer, and Brian Strait from Fleet Owner Magazine applied for the role. Thought, hey, this is great. We'll have somebody write content that can help and, you know, talk about what's happening in the market. And he joined us. And, you know, it, it was a slow start. It didn't take off really fast. But what happened is he went on vacation. I was, you know, it was getting 30, 40,000 page views a, a month, which at the time we were thinking was great. You know, this was exciting for us, but it wasn't, certainly wasn't a competitive, in a competitive position versus the other media sites. But Brian went on vacation and the hurricanes hit. And I was basically, I didn't want to bother him. So I ended up writing actually under his name about the hurricanes, like what to expect. Because I ran FEMA logistics for US Express and managed a lot of the task sites and recovery sites that we had done. So I had firsthand knowledge of how, what happens in a hurricane. And when I started writing it, our traffic exploded. And I had never considered myself an exceptional writer, would never have pretended to be a journalist before. But what was interesting about that experience was because of the fact that people thought they were reading Brian's stuff, it was, it gave us a chance to sort of a, B experiment, if you will. But it was written from a firsthand point of view of somebody who'd been at a FEMA disaster site. And that was my first realization that we had this amazing resource in our news at Freightways.com to really write about what was happening and inform folks in the market. And so that's how we got started was, was really set out to be an internal sales and marketing blog that turned into a news site. And then we realized that that was a great way to sort of reach the market. But I think what we do that's special is we do actually hire a lot of writers that don't have experience in the space. And I think what we are able to do is combine them with strong, organic, and tribal knowledge. People who have, we call market experts, who have deep knowledge of how the industry works, who have ran large 3PLs, large trucking companies, or large shippers, and sit them right next to a really good storyteller, someone who can construct a story. So you have deep tribal knowledge with really good storytellers. And that's the combination that's been special for us. It really has worked. And it's interesting. I, I had him on, Adam on my podcast, Adam Robinson from Saracis, who I always have said is the very best in LTL marketing. Recently, though, he said he, when he was on my podcast, he said it used to be just him. I mean, when you looked at you typed in anything LTL, the way I got to know him is because I wrote a lot of LTL articles. And he would always say, you're the only only other LTL blogger who knows how to use SEO. And I was like, my guys do, I don't. <laughs> and yeah. and then he, when he was on my podcast recently, he says, well, C.H. Robinson has done a real good job with it. And he goes in Freight Waves. But I think between your Freight Waves, C.H. Robinson and Cirrus, I think it's 80 some percent of the LTL articles in the page one and two of uh, Brandy topic related to LTL. So you guys are very impressive. Well, I appreciate that. And, and likewise, it, you know, I think Adam's done a great job. I mean, he's a, uh, you know, he, he's one person, but it, when you look at what, the, what he has been able to create in content, he actually looks like he's got a big team behind him. And I, I think, you know, I think the lesson there is that you don't actually have to have a deep team. You just have to have really compelling content and be able to tell really good stories behind it. He is a monster when it comes to that. Because I always just say, who else helps you? Who else helps you? Because it's got to be someone, someone more, but they're just very good. So yeah, so are you guys. Anyway, switching topics a little bit. So you come from this trucking family. You had a few ventures on your own. And then you decided not to go back to the family biz. You decided to start Freight Waves. Why did you start Freight Waves? And then when did you start Freight Waves? So the business actually started in mid-2016. We didn't get our first true venture funding until 2017. So really... It was October 2017 is really sort of the born on date of the business. So we're about two and a half years, a little, well, actually about a year and a half into it and almost two years into our business model and really didn't want to go back into the family business. You know, if you've worked in a family business, you know that there's usually one person, there's one, my brother won the CEO slot, that he got the genetic lottery, if you will, and it's probably a much better proxy for my dad than I am. I'm a pretty opinionated person. I think, you know, my brother was, uh, is probably a better corporate guy than I am. And so he won the right to be CEO. And I, 
I applaud him for that. And I decided that wasn't the right fit for me. And I wanted to do something on my own. I can say this because I work for my dad's family business. My dad's business, not nearly as successful as your father. And it's not easy. <laughs> I have a lot of friends and I'm in my, I'm in my fifties now. I can tell you, I have a lot of friends who grew up in their family business and there's always this sense that you get, you're entitled to this or you're entitled to that. And I just always remember saying, yeah, there's certainly things you're exposed to and you're having dinner with the uh, guy who knows the most. Those are all wonderful things, but then it's so many things are a lot harder. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I think, especially when you, you know, my father is still involved in the business. He's chairman of US Express and still active. You know, in some ways, I, and I think that's great for the business, but it's also at times difficult for my brother because he still has, he can't sort of chart his own path. And when you, when you have a founder that's had great success of building a business, you know, entrepreneurs tend to leave a mark on their company. You know, a company is defined by its founders, especially when a founder is still active in the business. And I think in some ways it's difficult for my brother because he, it's hard for him to sort of chart his own path. And perhaps he doesn't get enough credit, as much credit as he should, because he, he hasn't, you know, he quote unquote didn't do it on his own. And I, you know, I, I empathize with him and recognize that he has a more difficult task of trying to play both the son of the founder as well as trying to be CEO. And it's not, it's not particularly easy. Oh, no. And I, I always say this is your dad at some point had this great vision. This is what I want to have. And in a lot of ways, your brother taking over that role, he doesn't get to, he doesn't get to start from scratch. He doesn't say, I want to own a pizza place. He's, he's already kind of in the, <laughs> in the trucking business. Yeah, so we, t- we, we laugh a lot about it because I think he, in some ways, you know, is envious of sort of what I'm doing here in the sense that it's a blank slate. We have a board, we have outside investors, but ultimately, you know, if you have venture capital, it's a little different than private equity. Most people confuse private equity and VC. VC is about investors that just want all upside. They're not concerned about running the company. They're not concerned about telling the CEO what to do. They have, you know, you have a board you report to, you got to budgets and you, you know, have to get your numbers. But at the end of the day, the, a VC, a quality VC board will support a founder and an entrepreneur in many ways that uh, gives them a lot of freedom to be successful. Whereas in a private equity group, a lot of it's about cost containment control. And so my brother has sort of, you know, he's got, He's got the public markets now because they took the pump company public last year. He's got my dad sort of there as founder and board member and boss. And he's got to deal with all that. And then he's got to, you know, he's got to clean up sort of the legacy inertia that exists in any sort of mature business. And we don't. We can simply do what we want. And we have to report to the board. But at the end of the day, the board is very supportive. So it gives us a ton of room to go out and experiment and do exciting things like we're doing here. Yep. Well, it's... It's a fantastic legacy that your uh, brother's taking over. And boy, it sounds like you guys have, uh, it sounds like between your uncle and your uh, dad, these two huge monster companies in a city that's, what, 180,000 people got to employ half the city. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I mean, <laughs> the city's 180,000. And, you know, if you look at, take the truck drivers out of it, you know, you're talking about combined about 3,000 people that work at the companies <laughs> in Chattanooga. So it's still, you know, it's certainly sizable companies. They're not the biggest companies even combined. They wouldn't be the largest employer in town. But uh, certainly a, a lot of folks, you know, have made careers at both U.S. Express and Covenant. And I think really because of that, you know, getting into the story of Chattanooga, that's the reason I think that in no small part uh, due to the fact that those businesses exist here is the reason that Chattanooga has been so successful at building a successful freight venture capital innovation lab. and. I think the title of this is Why is Chatting with the Silicon Valley of Trucking? And I think certainly uh, having those two very large trucking companies that, you know, grew up in the 1980s or started in the 80s has a lot to do with the reason that Chattanooga's had a lot of success in the freight markets. Yep, absolutely. So before we get into why Chattanooga is the Silicon Valley of Trucking, let's talk a little bit about Chattanooga. I just did a little bit of research, Craig. So I know uh, Chattanooga is the fourth largest city in Tennessee behind Nashville, Memphis, and Knoxville. I know it's about, would you say 180,000 people about? Yeah, it's 180,000 in the city, about half a million in the metro area. Okay, so so much bigger metro area. Okay, good. I know this from a Michigander's point of view. If your Michiganders have to go down to Florida in the in the winter, it's the law. I know you always drive through Chattanooga, and I always say, this is a nice little place, and uh, the weather doesn't get real cold down there, right? 
It doesn't get cold. We'll have a couple of cold snaps uh, and you'll get a little bit of ice, but not bad. It's certainly not Michigan weather. Yeah. So uh, when I talk to Southerners, I always have to say, what is cold to you? Just because it might not be, (laughs) might not in fact be cold. (laughs) I think single digits Fahrenheit is pretty cold. Oh, that's cold. I agree. I agree. I agree. So this topic today, again, is why Chattanooga is the Silicon Valley of trucking with Craig Fuller. And I had read, I think like a year or so ago, I saw Steve Case, the founder of AOL, for those youngsters who didn't ever have an AOL account. He wrote a book called The Rise, The Rest. And in it, I think he, I think you talked to him. I think you were interviewed in that, if I'm not mistaken. But if not, <laughs> correct me and tell us a little bit about the premise of that book and why he named Chattanooga the Silicon Valley of Trucking. So the Rise of the Rest is actually his venture fund and tour that he goes on. So he has a, a venture capital fund that goes city to city and does a tour called the Rise of the Rest, which recognizes startups. And what his sort of thesis, and a little bit of it is arbitrage, because when you're in smaller communities like Green Bay, Wisconsin, or Chattanooga, or Northwest Arkansas, you're not getting, even places like Dallas and Memphis, you're not getting typical venture investors investing in your business. It's very difficult to create a technology startup in a place like Chattanooga or Dallas because there isn't a strong venture capital base here. And so his theory was that he could go find startups in these cities around the country and they do these tours, about seven cities when they do them. And they'll go, it's a bus, the Rise of the Rest bus goes out and they go city to city and they create these essentially pitch contests with startups. And we won the Chattanooga Rise of the Rest tour stop and really the thesis for us winning. So we competed against eight startups here in town. And really our pitch was that Chattanooga, you know, this wasn't apparent to see before he came here, but it became very apparent when he was not only hearing my pitch, but reinforced by the rest of the city was that, you know, Chattanooga has more folks connected to logistics per capita than any other city in America. And there are 23 PLs, brokerages that do more than $10 million a year in Chattanooga. And there are three companies that do more than a billion connected logistics that are headquartered here in Chattanooga. And so that was the thesis for his investment in Freightways is that if you're going to build the quote-unquote Bloomberg of Freight, are you going to build a business that provides data and news based on freight? It had being based in Chattanooga is natural. And so that was his reason that he invested in Freightways. Well, the book he wrote is called The Third Wave. And the the actual thesis behind the third wave is the fact that in the, if you sort of look at the first wave of the internet was, you know, everybody getting online. So AOL was in the first wave. They benefited from creating sort of this access to the internet. The second wave is really creating connectivity and you have to have big data and sort of network effects and social media to do that. And so Google and Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat are sort of that second wave of the internet. And that's where a lot of wealth and and really being located in Silicon Valley is a huge advantage in those types of businesses because they benefit a large concentration of folks that are in engineering talent and understand these scaled businesses. Whereas in the third wave, it's different because you're entering into an ecosystem and an environment in the economy where having access to, you know, the gatekeepers of the industry, people who can do deals and introduce you to sort of the influences of the industry or make decisions. Combined with tribal knowledge, with deep understanding of how these industries work, because you're because it's different when you're trying to innovate the internet or trying to innovate social media than when you're trying to innovate trucking or supply chains. It's a very different activity, and it requires firsthand tribal knowledge. And that was his thesis behind the third wave, which was deep, deep understanding of how these industries work. And that was the reason, you know, and I had never read his book. And so we were recognized. We won the contest in Chattanooga. And then about a couple of weeks later, I got the chance to go to a conference where he was at. And he asked me to come speak about his tour. And before I went, I figured I'd better read his book. So at least I had something to talk about that understood. And I started reading about it. And I'm like, this is our book. This is a book that very well I could have written. I don't think I'd written it as well as he would have. But I could have written it from the perspective of the secret to our success, which was the fact that we live in a community where there's a strong understanding of the industry. There's a lot of desire to see innovation. There's a lot of pride in the Chattanooga. Combined with the fact that we as a company have a lot of folks that have deep tribal knowledge of how this industry works. And we've combined it with access to decision makers and influencers that when we set out to start the business were 
connected throughout the industry to give us access to to bring in more. And it, it's a flywheel that continues to spin as you as you attract, whether it's in media or you attr- in freight, is you attract decision makers and influencers in these industries or just deals or salespeople or whatever your goal is. As you attract those people, they attract other people, like-minded people that want to be a part of something successful. And that's really been a lot, I think, if I had to credit our success with anything, it's just the fact that we did that very early on. We went out and created a board of advisors with highly influential thinkers in the industry. A lot of them were on the sell side, analyst side of freight. People like John Larkin and Tom Albrecht. And they created a, a certain level of credibility that we just used as a way to, to create more credibility. And, and from that, that's been the secret of our success. But I think Steve, you know, Steve Case recognized that. And he recognized that places like Chattanooga were specially represented there. And I think, you know, talking about Michigan, Michigan too... In the automotive space, you know, Michigan really, if you think about Michigan 50, 60 years ago, it was the Silicon Valley of the United States, maybe, you know, 80 years ago. That was where innovation, Motown was where the innovation was taking place. And it, it really lost it in the 1960s and 70s for lots of sort of structural reasons. And Silicon Valley had emerged as sort of the great place of innovation. California broadly emerged that. I think that the next narrative in innovation and, and adventure is not going to take place. The winners are not necessarily going to be just in Silicon Valley, but they're going to be places like Chattanooga. They're going to be places like Northwest Arkansas. They're going to be places like Des Moines, Iowa, where deep tribal knowledge is very, very important. Yep. And, you know, it's interesting. I live about 25 minutes from Ann Arbor and about an hour from Detroit. And I'm an automotive guy originally, and but I grew up in automotive. My dad owned an automotive engineering business. And Interesting, not so long ago, there was a speaker, a venture capitalist, prominent venture capitalist came to Ann Arbor and there's always, they're always rotating through the University of Michigan. And what was interesting is he said, stop coming to Silicon Valley, just do it here. You have like half of, you know, you look at who's in Silicon Valley, it's kids from Chattanooga, Des Moines, Indianapolis. So we have, we're educating kids to leave our cities to go be hopefully successful in Silicon Valley. But so often it's, there, there is a quality of life issue, especially when you first move there. And I know a lot of venture capitalists are getting to the point where they say, why invest in a company in Silicon Valley or San Francisco where the rents are so high that half of my investment goes to higher salaries to support your high rent and for paying really expensive commercial rates. That's right. And little bit of the money. I mean, you're talking about engineers in Silicon Valley making 120,000 and are, you know, basically equivalent of welfare in other cities. I mean, they're that 120,000 is equivalent to $40,000 in Chattanooga. Like it's not welfare, but these are, you know, these are not, the money doesn't go anywhere. And it's really sad. It's a sad story of the fact that there's, and you go to San Francisco, what was once, you know, my wife and I went out there. She had not been, I think, two years ago. And we, I talked about how beautiful and clean San Francisco was. And I hadn't been in many years. And I remember going there and being like, man, they have just, they, this is not what I remembered it as. It is, there is a very clear direction that the city has taken between the haves and have nots, and you walk down these corridors and these massively successful companies, you know, the, the titans of industry of this modern age are, are located in that city along this walk. And you have this very large homeless population. And it's just very clear that there's a big difference. And so I think, you know, venture, this next generation of venture capital, to your point, is going to be created in places like Detroit. It's going to be places like Des Moines, Iowa, and places like, you know, if you're in energy, it should be in Houston. If you're in cancer research, it should be in Cleveland. If you're in ag, it's in, you take it in Des Moines, Iowa. If you're in mobility, Detroit and Ann Arbor have an enormous advantage over Silicon Valley. And I think that's what we're going to see, the future of innovation. I'm, I'm pretty bullish on places other than Silicon Valley in this next turn of investment. We'll get right back to the podcast in just a moment. If you sell transportation or logistics services, the Logistics of Logistics can help you sell more. Our customized program will help you understand your sales personality, including your strengths and blind spots, get more sales leads, and improve your communication and salesmanship. We can also position you as a recognized industry expert and help you reach your target audience. To learn more, visit thelogisticsoflogistics.com. And now back to the show. Yeah, you mentioned the disparity between income. So 
I worked briefly, probably six months for a Silicon Valley company, Silicon Valley based company in Mountain View. I was based, it was a forecasting tools software. So my neighbor down the street got me involved. And so I knew him just from being on the lake. And anyway, we would have our friends from Mountain View come and we'd go out on the boat. And I remember right after one of the guys complained that the guys in Michigan were getting paid a lot more than they were. <laughs> we're like, because they have big houses, live, live on a nice lake. And we're like, no, we're all getting the same, dude. It's just you live in Silicon Valley. Well, you get nothing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, what's interesting was when we did our last raise. So our, our we have investors from Silicon Valley. Actually, our first investor was actually a Detroit-based firm. So Fontenelle's partners, Bill Ford's fund. And we also have Silicon Valley investors. But I, I remember one of my investors came back and said, so they were doing diligence and closing out the deal. And they looked at salaries of compensation for our employees. And they said, the thing that shocked them about our staff cost is that our team is making the same salaries in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as most of the portfolio companies their staff is making in Silicon Valley. And in fact, in some cases, we pay more in Chattanooga on average than their own portfolio companies do in Silicon Valley. And I actually take that as a compliment because what it means is that and if you think about it from when people buy our software or buy our services, they don't care if we're based in Silicon Valley or Chattanooga, Tennessee or Detroit or El Paso or Puerto Rico. They wouldn't care. What they care about is the quality of the product. And so we're not charging any less because we're in, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, but we are able to attract really good talent and take care of our employees in ways that, that we're uniquely able to do because there's a much lower cost of living here. And we don't, we don't actually pay less because we're in Chattanooga than we would if we were in Silicon Valley. And in fact, our benefits are, we would say that our benefits are equivalent to Silicon Valley benefits in terms of how we take care of our employees. And so I think that's important because we're, we have a distinct advantage of being a destination company in a city like Chattanooga. Whereas in the Valley, it's very, you know, you talked to a lot of startups, so it's very difficult to compete against Facebook and Google and all these other companies out there that are just trying to get talent. And so when people join companies in the Valley, they're thinking, okay, this is my next two to three years. If I'm successful here, I can go anywhere. I can go to this next company. And sort of that view, whereas they come and work here at Freight Waves, they're thinking, okay, this is going to be my next decade. I'm coming to join this company and I'm going to permanently commit to this. And what's nice about that is we can make the investments in them around training and around uh, giving them the opportunities. And we're not worried about, okay, if we make a you know $20,000 commitment on training, is this person going to leave us and go work for a competitor down the street? Just isn't, that's unlikely to happen. And so there's an enormous advantage of, I think, at this next cycle of, of innovation, of being not in Silicon Valley and being off the grid, if you will. But in a city like Chattanooga, where there's a lot of organic knowledge of how things like freight work. Yeah, that's a great point. I also think if you're a parent in Chattanooga or the surrounding areas, what would be you know, and this is this happens for most of the most of the country is you send your kid off to school and then they head off to somewhere else to make their career. And it's very frustrating. And I imagine for many generations, kids left Chattanooga and they now sure. they don't have they don't have to. Well, it's it's it. But, you know, the thing is, and I did this the other day. So I was with the Chamber of Commerce and, and they've sort of woken up to logistics and how important it is to our city. But we have one hundred and thirty employees in Chattanooga that are based here in Chattanooga. 45 of those employees, because I said, I think it's about third, and I was actually a little bit under, but 45 of the 130 employees that currently work inside this building that I'm in right now are from other cities that actually moved to Chattanooga to work at Freight Waves. They were not in Chattanooga before we hired them, and they're coming from all over the country. And I think that says something about, and then really it's, it's unique because I think because we're in freight, we're able to do that. Like if we were in another industry, if we're in say, payments or healthcare or whatever, or just SaaS, it would be very difficult to do that because people would say, hey, if it doesn't work out with this company, then where else am I going to go? I, I can't take my experience to a competitor down the road or to maybe another startup down the road if you're in a sector where there's no other players. But in Chattanooga, there are dozens of companies that are growing really, really fast in freight. And so it gives a lot of executives that would relocate here comfort of knowing that they can take their skills and they're transferable to other places. And I thought that's interesting because it's certainly the view that we, we benefit of having a lot of sort of homegrown folks is true. But we also benefit from having people that are, are willing and interested of relocating from other cities. That's why well, I know my buddy, Kevin Hill, loves being down there. I yeah, he's a Tulsa guy. So. 
I know. Yeah, he's a Tulsa guy. And it's funny because when he, when he moved, he's single. And we talked about, he asked how the environment was. I said, well, you know, what's cool about working at Freight Waves is we're a destination company. We're a cool company. You know, people in, in town think of you like the Google or Facebook. I said, you'll have no problem being single in this town because uh, you're, right. you're, you're, you're in good <laughs> shape and it's fun. So. so let's get back to this why Chattanooga became the Silicon Valley of trucking. So you started off, you were talking about, you know, you had these two big dogs, U.S. Express and Covenant. And so these were obviously great trucking companies, but there's great trucking companies. I mean, we probably have more trucking companies here in Michigan than you guys do down there. But you guys became that Silicon Valley. And you, you mentioned earlier this tribal knowledge, and I think that has something to do with it. So expand a little bit more on that tribal knowledge and how this led to this, you know, this happening, this event. <laughs> Yeah, so it's these, if you look at startup communities, and I've, I've become somewhat obsessed with seeing how things happen. Why are, you know, why are certain cities have clusters of industries? And you, why is Silicon Valley Silicon Valley? Why is Detroit, why was it Motown? And why is it Motown? And what happens to these different cities? But you, you have to have sort of the right conditions to create cities with concentration of talent. So the first thing that, that I think we had was, you know, you had, so the carpet industry is really what created the trucking, the long haul over the road trucking businesses that, you know, my family were, were went out and created, was actually created to haul carpet. And so the tufting machine, the machine that makes carpet was actually invented in Chattanooga and in Dalton, Georgia, which is just south of here. And that's the reason, frankly, the car, Dalton, Georgia is the carpet capital of the world. And in order to haul that freight, you have to have trucking companies. So my grandfather started a trucking company, sold it. And then my father and my uncle respectively went out and started Covenant and U.S. Express. And they created these really strong truckload carriers that ran long distance, long haul from east to west. That was their power lane. And they benefited from sort of the changing of supply chains and the, you know, uh, global trade of moving freight between, you know, the different parts of the country and, and across I-40 and I-20 and stuff. And so those businesses created a lot of organic knowledge here in Chattanooga, but they didn't recycle capital and frankly didn't recycle management to sort of enter and start these other businesses. But something happened in the early 2000s was there was an entrepreneur, a guy out of college at Sanford University, was one of his fraternity brothers, his dad owned a brick company and they were doing flatbed brick movements around the country. And a guy who was a salesman for C.H. Robinson, right out of college, these fraternity brothers, one went to C.H. Robinson, one went for dad's business. They decided, the guy who was at C.H. Robinson decided, hey, why don't we just create a brokerage business inside of your dad's brick business? And they did. They created something called Access America. They got acquired, you know, went from zero in 2002 to about $600 million in revenue by 2014. They got acquired, merged with Coyote. Coyote then sold to UPS a year later. And in 15, this $600 million freight broker based in Chattanooga with about 450, 500 employees ended up getting purchased. And if you know anything about the Coyote story and the Access America story, you know, it was a sort of a, a real strong sales culture. And then it, it had gotten bought by Coyote, which is much more systems and process driven. And then got bought by UPS, which is systems and process driven. And a lot of the founding folks and talent ended up basically leaving. But most of them were pretty young. Some of them had made a lot of money. You know, I think that transaction was $260 million and there was no venture capital. So it all went to the founders that were, you know, in their 40s. And they went out and started tech businesses and they started making investments. They went out and helped other people start freight brokers. They hoped they could have the same story. And that money sort of recycled into the community and created these dozens upon dozens of trucking startups and freight broker startups. And then, you know, you had Reliance Insurance, which was selling insurance to trucking companies. And so you had this really strong sort of investment cycle because of that event that took place combined with there's already a desire in the community to build a venture or a tech startup community out of TARP money in the internet. And so the city got together in 2010 and built a, a smart grid to every, every house in the city could get 10 gigabit internet to their house, thinking that if they built the smart grid, that that could also create innovation in startups. That didn't really take off. It took off once Ted Aileen sold Access America they were able to combine sort of this thrust and desire to have this fast internet and the startup community with all this new capital and tribal knowledge. And that's really what created Chattanooga, creating a startup community around freight. 
it's an interesting it's interesting dynamic so we got these trucking companies we got this tribal knowledge then all of a sudden a whole bunch of people hit the streets some of them with a lot of money still in working age and i think you know in a lot of cities like detroit there's layoffs people don't necessarily all start companies i think the transportation and logistics business is traditionally very entrepreneurial. I mean, we you look at the largest companies don't have what more than 1%, 2% of the market. I think, you know, if you look at that compared to say automotive, there's 10 big automotive companies that basically sell everything. So, I think it's an entrepreneurial industry. For sure, and there's no moat, right? Cuz anybody can go start, particularly freight brokerage, and that's it's what Access America was, was a freight broker. And so there was no capital really required. I mean, frankly, anyone with an internet access could go start a freight broker. And that's true today. And I think the Access America playbook was one that had a ton of success. And it was just based on really strong sales cultures. And I think that got replicated dozens upon dozens of times. So now we know how it started. We had these trucking companies. And again, this tribal knowledge, a little bit of money hits the street, entrepreneurs looking to start something new. Now that you have that community, are there companies that are now moving, I'll call it freight tech or logistics tech that are moving to Chattanooga because that's where the community's at? Yeah, I mean, we, Freightways is one of those that moved to Chattanooga. I, the business actually started in Fort Worth, Texas. In fact, our first investor was in Fort Worth. But we moved to Chattanooga because of that strong tribal knowledge. And that's where we really scaled our business up. Workhound is a, a firm that does an app for drivers for feedback, uh, create feedback loop on drivers and really empower them. Reliance Insurance is an insurance company that provides information or provides underwriting for trucking companies. And so you're starting to see a lot of these sort of startups. You know, uh, Bellhops is a venture back company. It's a moving company, sort of a stu- using student labor to do household goods moving that also has come out of here. Ambition is a SaaS business that does gamification around sales targets and their largest industry that they're focused on is logistics. And so a lot of it is just, there's a ton of industry energy around the space that's being guided by people who, who have deep understanding of how the market works. Let me ask this, because I, I didn't do this research, but you live there, so you should know. Is Tennessee a pretty business-friendly state? I've always had the impression that it, that it is. It is. I mean, it's first of all, there's no state income tax. You have There was a capital gains tax, but it was really limited. That's being phased out. And so you have very low taxes. You also have low real estate taxes. So I was paying, an uh, equivalent house that I had in Texas was, I pay about one-sixth of the taxes that I paid out in Texas for real estate taxes. You know, you're talking a huge savings when you're not paying for the land you own and for your house. And so, you know, no income tax. My wife, so my wife lived in New York. She moved to Chattanooga and she got her first paycheck and she looked at me, something's wrong. I said, what's wrong? She goes, well, it's too much money. And I said, what do you mean? I said, no, it looks right to me. She goes, well, where are all the taxes? And I said, there is no taxes in the state of Tennessee. And she goes, well, but, Am I going to go to jail? I'm like, no, 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 no. There just aren't any taxes here. Don't worry. This is, you're, they didn't screw it up. And I think it's sort of this realization that, you know, when you're able to keep more of your money, it just means far more to you. And that's why it's a business-friendly state. It's a business-friendly state. You know, it doesn't have a lot of real tight regulations. It's a right-to-work state. So there's a lot of advantages from a business and entrepreneur to be based here because you're not dealing with a lot of the things that, that people have to deal with in other cities. And frankly, our the money goes a lot long, you know, Think about that from a staff standpoint is if you live in a state where you don't have personal income taxes is that the more you, you know, because when you're doing a, a startup, the more money you can get in the hands of your employees, the frankly, the better quality of life that they'll have. Yeah, I, you know, I'm being from Michigan and I spent most of my career working in this, in the Detroit supply base, automotive supply chain. And I did some when I was managing freight, managed a little 3PL. We had a client down, well, it's Nissan down in uh, Tennessee. And I remember going to Nashville and staying there. And I was like, wow, this is just really, just a really special place. And, you know, it's interesting. Being in my 50s, I remember a time when we would kind of look down south and go, that's kind of where half of Detroit came from is from the (laughs) south. And so to this day, I have friends who say, uh, you know, you don't mess with a southern girl from Detroit, which... Sounds stupid unless you know the story because her grandparents came here and they really kind of never left their southern roots. But we would look and kind of look down upon because nothing was going on. Again, everybody left there to get a job, the great factories. It was a backwater. 
I mean, Tennessee <laughs> was a backwater. Uh, I mean, really the whole South was. And if you go back to the history, you know, in the 1930s, people didn't have power, electricity, and plumbing until, the, until FDR created the New Deal. And so that, that created this Appalachia development that sort of spurred the initial stages of economic development. But it wasn't until the 80s and 90s where exactly what you described, which is you had a lot of automotive companies that started to relocate in the South because it was a better business environment for them. And so as they started to locate here, it created a lot of interest in the South and air condition certainly helps, you know. And so there's been a lot more development in the South because of, of a lot of things. You know, you think about this, and this is sort of astounding, is the Southern economy is about as big as Canada. In fact, the South and Canada have a lot in common, about effectively about the same population size and about the same size of the economy in a five-state region. It's pretty astounding when you think about how big the Southern economy is and gets very little respect on the stage. Yep. And I think if you look, I remember doing some research on this a while back, is we think of the highway systems that we have now, they're very well developed and you can everything's connected. Until like the 60s and 70s, where we had a big spending push, the Southwest and the South wasn't necessarily connected well because you didn't have large population centers at the time. But the rise of those connecting through the highways, and you mentioned the AC. No one's moving, no one's moving <laughs> up down, down to Texas without AC. <laughs> oh, not right now. It is, I mean, it is scorching hot down here. Yeah. Well, Craig, this has been quite the education. I really appreciate you taking the time. So why don't you put a bow on this? Give us a little summary of this, and then I'd like to hear a little bit more about Freightways before we end. Yeah, so I, I think of, you know, I enjoyed talking about Chattanooga specifically, but I always uh, sort of, I think the lessons of Chattanooga and certainly Freightways are provide really blueprints for other cities and provide blueprints for, you know, businesses like us to be successful. So I, do, I always love talking about these trends, not because I think Chattanooga is the best city in the world. I think it is one of a really cool place to build a business. But more importantly, I think there's things that have made us special and successful as a city that could be learned in other communities about how you how you build startups and how you really encourage growth. So I'm hope uh, hopefully the folks listening to this podcast, I don't know a lot of it's in logistics and freight, but could think about are there opportunities to sort of spur innovation? I mean, logistics as a sector is $9.6 trillion globally. It is not a niche. It is a massive, important industry. And I hope that uh, someone listening to podcasts thinks about their own community are there opportunities to create these clusters of, of economic development out of the space? And so I, I hope that comes of it. And in terms of Freightways, what's next? I mean, we've got Freightways Live, which is in Chicago. It's our event on November 12th and 13th, which is really meant to, you know, Morgan Stanley described it as the CES of freight, but it's meant to be a really, really vibrant environment with lots of luminaries, lots of really great speakers, lots of uh, focus on sort of what the future of freight looks like. In a party atmosphere, and it's not sort of a reckless party atmosphere, but hopefully high speed, a lot of fun, really good thinkers and, and speakers and demo candidates up there showing their technology. So hope that people can come join us and then look for Freightways TV. We're launching the first over-the-top streaming TV network dedicated to freight transportation logistics right here in the next couple of months and really excited about what that could potentially mean. I will say this, and not just because my buddy Kevin is on there, but um, I've watched this at Emily. And Kevin, yes. uh, I see it always posted on LinkedIn. It's a very well done show just about what we all worry about. <laughs> well, she is a, so she's our producer and she is amazing because she came from local news. She's actually was in, was in Omaha, Nebraska doing the local morning show. Very talented, extremely intelligent, but also just has this view of what she wants. She's a bit of a perfectionist in a good way. And she has really driven the idea of professionalizing this this product, which is Freightways TV. And I think she deserves a lot of credit. And really, the production team has done a lot of work. And we, you know, it is not a, the thing we've tried to do is continue to innovate, continue to think differently about it and make it better. And so we're very critical, much like a sports team in terms of, like, I hate the SEC, but I'm a big Nick Saban fan personally, because I think if you look at when you run football teams or run sports teams, they're always thinking, okay, I, I'm never going to settle with how we operated last game or last season or last play. And I think that's true of our sort of spirit here at Freightways, which is if we do something and we do it well, 
that is the bar. That's the low bar the next time. And I think Emily and the rest of the team here, Kevin as well, sort of aspire for that on everything that they do. we need to talk football on a whole separate podcast because <laughs> I won't shut up about my Wolverines. Bears. <laughs> who, who are you? Who's, who's your team? I'm a Michigan Wolverine fan. So I, All I, right. I'm a, we've had season tickets for like 50 years and I got my master's there. I love, I don't always love my university, but I always love my football team. <laughs> I hear you. I have five investors that are actually University of Michigan graduates. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of them. That's for sure. So <laughs> Craig, you didn't touch on one thing that I'm hoping you can touch on because it's not the easiest thing to understand for us laymen. Tell us a little bit about your Sonar project. Yeah, so Sonar is, a, think of it as a Bloomberg of Freight. And Bloomberg actually calls it the Bloomberg of Freight because we, we work with uh, some Bloomberg. But basically, it's taking in data that we anonymize. Basically, all this data that's being created between TMS systems talking to one another, visibility systems, ELDs, so, you know, payments, all the data that goes out there as people sort of digitize the market, they're creating a bunch of exhaust data. And that exhaust data, individual transactions just isn't interesting from our perspective because we're not trying to track freight or provide visibility of freight or look at driver's hours individually. What we're trying to do is say, can we look at the freight economy at a macro level? Can we see hundreds of billions of dollars of freight moving at a macro level? You need really big data sets to do that. And so we go out to companies that are, are IoT companies in the space or even participants and say, look, we want to get data, we want to anonymize it, we want to collect it, and then we want to clean it up and produce it in these big, big indices where you can see uh, activity in the market happen in near real time. So after we get access to data, we have a couple hundred sources of data that are coming across. We put 120,000 time series data points out every day. And that data is basically anonymized data sets of hopefully a version of truth of the market. And so you're actually seeing the freight market move. And it's very similar you would see in commodities markets where people are looking at, you know, oil information to figure out where oil should be priced at or are looking at, uh, you know, there's all these services that provide information around stocks. I think about it from the perspective of if you're trying to buy a stock or a mutual fund or an ETF, you want to learn everything you can about that information. And there's a lot of services that provide data around it. Why can't you do that for freight? And that was really the idea behind Sonar is providing information for the industry to understand what's happening. Let me ask you this. So let's just say I'm a little uh, trucking company or I'm a freight broker. What problem do you solve for me? Yeah, so it's price and capacity. If you're a freight broker, it's about price and capacity discovery and identifying volatile markets. So the most effective way, if you think about freight brokers, they make their money either through sort of managed transportation where they have a contract on behalf of a shipper to sort of manage their business and, and their jobs to make sure that A, trucks show up and B, that they arrive and, and deliver on time. And then maybe they'll make a profit. Hopefully they make a profit. And then there's the other part of freight brokerage, which is they live inside the market and they're effectively day trading the market. They're buying capacity at a lower price than when they sell it to a shipper and they make money because the market is opaque and it's fragmented and they may, they may have access to trucks that nobody else had in the market or may have access to information that nobody else had. The problem is that most of the data that has been available to freight brokers is weeks old. You know, price assessments, you know, a price index in itself, no matter how accurate it is, if it's based on actual transactions, is a few weeks old, regardless of how close in time you try to get it, because just the cycle of information is slow. And so what we have done is we've gone out and said, there are things that actually lead the market prices and, you know, companies in aggregate, trucking companies make decisions on where to move trucks, where demand's at, where they can maximize price. And they're making those decisions weeks before maybe other trucking companies are because the data is very slow. We're speeding that up and providing better price discovery and identifying which markets are volatile in terms of price and volatile in terms of demand and supply. And that information helps freight brokers price more efficiently, ensure that their service, the trucks that they booked are actually going to show up because the market can predict that. For trucking companies, it's figuring out what markets to move to. So you understand, hey, I know Dallas is on fire today. All of a sudden, you know, there's a huge surge of demand coming out of Dallas. I need to move trucks into that market. If you get information before your competitors do, then you actually have a huge advantage. It's a money ball for freight is what this is. So in a way, let me make sure I understand what you're saying. So let's just say I'm a, I'm a freight broker, 3PL, and I'm subscribing to your service. And at some point I see, 
whoa, looks like rates are really trending up really quickly in this area. Let's lock down some rates for the next month in those four lanes. And these three lanes, I'm not worried about. It's just those four lanes. Would that be something they might use your tool for? Correct. So if if there's, they use it for managing the four lanes and identifying supply and demand on those lanes and making sure they can deliver at a price. They're using it to project price where they should be priced at because the problem with freight brokerage, really for asset carriers, but the freight brokers actually have much more exposure is that because they don't only asset, if they underprice in the market price, if they lock in a contract price, and that's at say $2 a mile. And at the time they locked it in, the price is $1.60. And then all of a sudden, when it comes to deliver those trucks, that price is $2.05 a mile in the spot market. They either can take the loads and take a loss, or they can tell the customer they can't honor the price or can't honor the capacity. Pretty tough position. And what we're trying to do is inform those decisions better. Everybody has the same access to the same data sets. And by doing that, hopefully they'll be able to understand where they should be thinking about price and where they should be thinking about exposed. I mean, one of the best quotes we had last week was sent to us by a large 3PL that was, had bid on a piece of freight, was number two in the routing guide, was getting zero loads, and all of a sudden got this email from a very large shipper that said, hey, I want to let you know that you're now, you're going to start seeing freight from us. You're now number one in the routing guide. The carrier that had the loads was number one is now out of business. And I think what is interesting about that is that oftentimes when people bid freight, they don't have really good sense of where the market's headed. Is it going to tighten? Is it going to be loose? And by having access to data that we accumulate and provide visibility to, they can make better pricing decisions and better capacity decisions. You know, you guys are kind of like the Bloomberg of freight. Anyone ever tell you that? To do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you think about it, most freight transactions, decisions are made within 48 hours. When you route freight, you basically got a two to three day window. And so if, if that's true and you're using data that's weeks or months old, then you're actually making decision with really old data. Your data is out of date. And so our goal is to speed up the cadence of how fast that data is presented and give people better visibility of what's happening in a near real-time fashion. It's a tool that's time has come for sure. So Craig, thank you so much. What I'm going to do is for anybody listening, I'll put in the transcripts. I will put Craig Fuller's LinkedIn, so you can bug him like I do. You can also, I'll put something in on FreightWaves, FreightWave Sonar, and then also for your upcoming conference, which is in November, correct? That's correct, yes. So Craig, thank you so much for, for taking the time and for educating us on your wonderful city. I appreciate it. Thanks for everything and then enjoyed the, enjoyed the talk. All right, until next time, onward and upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversations with experts in the logistics field. If you're an expert and would like to be featured on the Logistics of Logistics podcast, please email Joe Lynch at joe at the logisticsoflogistics.com.